This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You turn on the television, the radio, or the computer. You go over the content, and most of the time, it all makes sense. It's rational. It's believable. But every once in a while, something crops up as a headline or a shared post that seems off. It looks real, but your spidey senses throw up a warning sign. Should you trust it? Welcome to the world of fake news. This week, we're going to report on the latest information regarding the origin and the rise of fake news. We're going to explore how it can be recognized and flagged by computer software. And in our SAS class, we're going to learn why we tend to fall for fake news. If you think it's political ideology, you're in for a surprise. Trust me. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetra, and I'm going to give you news that you can use to keep you away from the fake stuff. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Over the last few years, fake news has grown to a point where we can't escape it. No matter where you look, there's some kind of trickery going on. The rise of fake news has been a major point of study, discussion, and yes, argument in the scientific community. The term is now branched into separate entities depending on the type and amount of fakery provided. We'll get into that later. What we do know is that fake news is anything but new. In fact, for the longest time, it was considered a good thing in the form of satire and parody. All you have to do is look back to Weekend Update on the television show Saturday Night Live when Norm MacDonald was the anchor. He literally started the segment by saying, Good evening, I'm Norm MacDonald, and this is the fake news. Granted, fake news has evolved over the last 30 years since Norm sat in the anchor's chair. But our adoption of satire, parody, sports entertainment, and reality TV as part of our normal lives may indeed have allowed the worst aspects of fake news to grow and fester. Our first guest has been studying the role of satire and parody in our lives and how this may have helped to bring on the fake news generation. Perhaps more importantly, her work is trying to identify how this form of communication exists so that we may be able to bring it to a stop. Her name is Amber Day, and she is a professor of English and Cultural Studies at Bryant University. What is the difference between the satirical fake news we see on, say, Saturday Night Live or The Onion and the fake news that's bombarding us on a daily basis? 
Well, it is confusing because they both often have the same name when we talk about them in common parlance, but I think they're actually really different. I, mean, I think the main difference is that satiric fake news is designed to reveal something, or at least the good, uh, the, the successful satire, right? It shines a light on something, shows us some hypocrisy or inconsistency. Whereas the fake news kind of fake news is usually designed to deceive, right? To sort of inflame passions, to make some people think that something is true and it's not actually true and to kind of poke the bear. And there, of course, are times when satiric news is misinterpreted as real, but that's rarely its intention. And I think most of the pleasure in watching a fake newscaster or reading an Onion article is in knowing that it's not real, but they're doing a good job. Right. Like that's that's yeah. often why we why we laugh or why we sort of applaud the artistry because they're doing it so well. But it's this it, it's the kind of we have like an eye on the fact that it's both not real or it, that they're not newscasters, but not not newscasters. Right. Yeah. That they're somewhere in that gray area in between. But it's really not it's really not entertaining at all if we just think we're watching a news program. You look at all the ones from Saturday Night Live, all the way back to Chevy Chase, all the way through to today's Colin Jost and Michael Che. You have Jon Stewart. You had Colbert. All of them were using that satire and parody, but it was sort of a form of activism, as if they were trying to point out flaws in a system that refused to see them for themselves. But right. could that possibly be then the seed for fake news that we see today? Because they too claim to be trying to find or, or point out uh, problems in systems that refuse to see it for themselves. Albeit those systems probably are truthful, whereas they're using fake. Yeah, well, I don't, I mean, I don't think we can lay the blame at the feet of, of um, parodists and satirists for the fake news problem that we have today, because honestly, the f- fake news itself has been around forever. It's, it, that, it's actually not a new problem, right? We've, there was yellow journalism and just straight up fake stories and tabloids, and those have been around as long as the press has been around. But I think what has changed is just the environment in which we're consuming news, right? So social media in particular, and the fact that we have this sort of lightning fast circulation of stories through social media, and they're like one click, zoom, and it's gone, you know, it's been shared a, uh, a thousand times. And then just the, the fact that we have this explosion of information sources around us, and yet it creates all sorts of noise, right? That, that, that explosion of information sources means that it's sort of harder to weed through and know what's actually a good information source. Obviously, it's a problem now of needing more and more media literacy training in, in order to decipher all of that stuff. But of course, that being said, like any art form, <laughs> which is always derivative, <laughs> yes. and I, 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 will, uh, I will say even the most pernicious fake news, let's, let's call it an art form, right? In, in some ways it is. It, it is obviously going to imitate some of what's around it and so some of the forms that we've gotten used to. And The Onion was doing the same thing in that it, it, when it started, part of the pleasure, of course, is that it's imitating the cadence and the style and the use of commas in headlines and little sort of neighborhood presses or those sort of local newspaper. And so fake news tends to do that as well. But I don't think that's all satirists' fault. (laughs) It kind of reminds me a little bit of the um, 
similarities between culture jamming and propaganda because they're both essentially taking something that's for real and then altering the perception of it either by changing the artwork or changing the wording of a slogan or something along those lines. And I'm wondering, could satire in its own way be along the lines of that culture jamming where we're opening our eyes, whereas the fake news is along the lines of that propaganda where they're just trying to make you believe in something that's not real as opposed to that tongue-in-cheek or, or winking? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's a good way of putting it. And I think uh, that's what I was trying to get that with that distinction of sort of revealing versus, I guess, the opposite of revealing, right? Sort of obscuring, obscuring the facts and sort of muddying the waters and making people be unsure of what's actually true. I think propaganda does that as well. And I, and the sort of satire culture jamming, if it's done well, and it isn't always, but if it's done well, it's because it is shining a light on something. It is kind of pulling back the curtain and making it say like, oh yeah, isn't it interesting how that, how that works? I've never really sort of thought to think about it, right? Stop to think about it. And, or that is kind of hypocritical that we have this policy, but then we do X. And that gets me thinking about hoaxing. I mean, you look at wrestling. They hoax all the time. They've even got a term for it. It's called working as opposed to shooting, which is real. Reality TV is constantly hoaxing. They're using careful editing and creative editing to be able to make you have that feeling that time is closer than it should be. Or maybe there's more emotion between two people than there actually is. Is this not really a form of fake news when you're hoaxing? even if you are trying to make a point through satire or parody? Sure. Well, I think there's different forms of hoaxing. And I do, you know, as somebody who's enjoys satire, I, I do like a good prank. <laughs> but I, I tend to gravitate towards the ones that, again, are, are, are showing me something or revealing something or, or telling me something that I didn't already know. I think hoaxes that just sort of make a fool out of one person in particular, those are less interesting. And I think they can, uh, they can do what I, I think you were starting with, which was sort of muddy the waters as well, right? Yes. And they can just make us more distrustful of the media in general, which I think is not helpful. <laughs> and do you think then that there is a fine line now because of the rise of fake news for people who are doing satire, parody, hoaxing, that type of thing? Has, has there sort of been a, a move in the needle so that they have to be more careful about what they're doing lest they be equated, conflated, whatever, to fake news? Yeah, but I think always that people, if, if they want to make a difference, sort of have to be careful about the message that they are sending, right? But I, I think absolutely now, I, I, hopefully, people who are, you know, doing this kind of work are sort of cognizant of what the end goal is and not wanting to just sort of be a, an easy thing that can be dismissed as, well, see, all, see the, the, quote, liberal media or the, the elite media or whatever it is, is, is terrible, right? And they're dishonest. And that clearly shouldn't, I think, be the end goal if one is trying to sort of cut through the noise and make a particular statement. But if it, if it can help people feel like they have a stake and that they have a say and to get people energized and engaged, it's absolutely doing something. Do you think that there's a future for satire and parody? Or do you feel like we simply are just going to be so triggered at everything that's happening that there will be no place for it? 
I think it's getting more and more difficult. The more fake news we have out there, the more difficult it's getting for satirists to actually, even if they're revealing something enormous, for that to still break through the clutter, right? And I think that's where things are getting kind of difficult and scary, perhaps, in that if we, uh, satire is sort of premised on there being a set of facts that we can agree on, and at least there being a sort of public sphere where we're exchanging information. But if we can't actually agree, if we're in completely different public spheres and we have completely different sets of facts, then of course it almost doesn't matter what a satirist is revealing. It's only going to be interesting to the people in that camp and is not going to reach a, a lot more people, which, yeah, I don't know what to do with. <laughs> but it's, a, I think it is a new challenge, right, at the part of the sort of media atmosphere of the moment. Let me ask you a question. Can you spot fake news online? I'm sure most of you are probably saying yes. But are you sure? Have you ever fallen for a story that you thought was true? I know I have. It can be embarrassing, to say the least. It's not always easy to decipher through the headlines and pick out the fake news items. But our next guest has been working on a way to help us sort through the bandwidth and find those false headlines so we don't have to worry about getting it wrong. Her name is Victoria Rubin, and she is an associate professor in the Faculty of Information and Media Studies at the University of Western Ontario. She has developed a browser known as lit.rl, read literal, and its sole purpose is to point out stories that appear to be misleading and should not be given the benefit of a click. The best part about this browser is that it's open access and you can find it simply by typing those letters lit.rl into your browser. You could even try it right now or check the show notes for the link. Just make sure you listen to the interview. What are the main types of fake news? Well, uh, in principle, I object to the idea of calling it fake news because fake news can be misunderstood in many ways. What we typically talk about is falsified news, which are the type of news that intentionally misinform public. So that would be uh, the first one. We can call them falsehoods, and that's what typically people would think of as fake news. The second type could be somewhat misleading, and a lot of people are familiar with clickbait. So they tap the top 10 reasons to go visit Orlando, Florida, or, you know, he never told us what it was, and it's left ambiguous. You don't really know what it is, and most people go for it. The curiosity factor is in place here. So second is clickbait. And the third one, you could say is satirical fakes, something that used to be called fake news, used to be referring specifically to satire. So those are the three that we worked on. But there are quite a few more that you can add to that list, uh, various rumors and hoaxes that people post on social media. And there's a new and upcoming uh, native ad or advertorials that are poorly labeled, something that we worked on as well. So, so far in our program, we've tackled falsehood, satirical fakes, and clickbait, the three. But many more are coming, including deep fakes, for instance, where the videos have been doctored or spliced or some important context has been omitted. 
if I may add a couple of things, I think the two big distinctions about providing incorrect, inaccurate, or misleading information are misinformation versus disinformation. We distinguish disinformation as being intentionally altered information and misinformation as something that happens by mistake. Somebody saw some piece of news and decided to repost it carelessly, not quite being aware of the context or believing that that's the true situation. And then somebody else gets that news and is unintentionally misinformed. So the miss and dis is fairly important. And some other people also include malinformation, and they talk about specific malicious agents that go into great extent of slowing Pelosi's speech, for instance, and doctoring a video so that she sounds drunk. That would be more like a malinformation, an in-between category between misunintentional information and disintentional inaccurate information. Now, your verification right. browser isn't necessarily concerned with the motive. It's really more concerned about looking for these particular items that may or essentially may not be true. And, and I'm wondering how the browser does this. Right. So what we identify is the general sense of deceptiveness. So we collect a lot of data and we label some types of text as truthful because we know they're truthful and other types of text as deceptive and we see what the differences are. So the browser that is called the falsification detector uses these years of interpersonal psychology insights. What's known is that deceivers use fewer self-references. And there are many other kind of clues or markers that we call. For instance, people, when they lie, they provide less detailed answers or more indirect statements, or they show more negative emotion. So we pick on these various clues that are linguistic expressions of how we speak, and the theory behind it is that liars speak differently from truth-tellers. So that's sort of one part of the uh, news verification, deception, identification. So if an article is produced, made up, completely falsified. The way it's written is going to be different from a person truthfully reporting the events. This reminds me a lot of a diagnostic test. And one of the things that we focus on is specificity and sensitivity. In that context, how accurate is your verification browser these days? It is a fairly complex task. Unfortunately, it's, there's no silver bullet, and the uh, falsification part is the least accurate one, and that's something that even human beings struggle with. The accuracy rates are somewhere in the upper 60s percentile of accuracy. So 65% of the time, the falsification detection uh, software would be able to alert a user who is reading an article that there might be a general sense of deception in it. So in the context of 54% human performance, 65% by automated means, it's quite a gain in the sense of we can get a better idea whether it's truthful or not. The other two are a lot more accurate. So the other two detectors, one is clickbait and the other one is satire, their performance rates are quite higher. So to be able to tell a satirical piece from just news, legitimate news piece, we've employed very similar techniques of finding what is it that's different in satire from straightforward presented news. And the accuracy rates, they're around 85%. 
So it's 20% gain over the falsehood. And when we look at clickbait, there it gets even higher. So clickbait is quite formulaic. And we're getting about 92, 93, 95% accuracy. And you kind kind of see that it's a proof of concept. If the general technology of finding valuable features that would be able to tell one from the other, satire from non, clickbait from non, falsehoods from non-falsehoods. If that general principle works, we can apply it to various phenomena. We can apply it to bias or not. We can apply it to controversy or not, native ad or not. By native ad, I mean something that's built into text to sound like it's not an advertisement. It's just sort of promotion of a film. It's, it's kind of veiled, veiled ads. It sounds like it's almost like a vaccine. You're vaccinating people against falsification, vaccinating against clickbait, etc. If that's the case, do you think that we might also be able to use something like your verification browser or something that happens afterwards with your research to be able to help guard against polarization as a result of these types of stories? It's an interesting idea, and I always emphasize that the final solution is in the mind of the beholder. In the sense, we may be able to implement some of these clues in literacy programs. We may be able to educate vulnerable population. We may be able to talk to the seniors. We may be able to talk to the youngsters or those who are just uh, practicing online social media um, routines in a fairly poor sort of hygienic ways, they might be time-pressed, they might be information overloaded, they might be biased. And it takes that effort on the part of a person who is receiving the information to actually be willing to respond. So a vaccination is not something that you would do forcefully. If you're going with that analogy, you can suggest inoculation, you can suggest preventive measures, but the final decision is in the reader's mind, who I was reading the news, and I always say stop, think, and do not share till you're sure, because then you can perpetuate this socio-technological epidemic of uh, fake or falsified news, right? It's SAS class time, and today we're going to explore the one question I've been asked time and time again. Why do people fall for fake news? You might think it has to do with politics. I know I did. But according to our guest teacher, it may be something far more troubling. His name is Gordon Pennycook, and he is an assistant professor of behavioral science at the University of Regina. He recently published a paper on fake news in which he found that the reason behind people's susceptibility isn't solely a result of partisan bias. In fact, it may be more likely due to laziness. How effective are people at detecting fake news on their own? People can be effective. There's kind of two different ways to answer the question. One is, are people good at doing it when they're on social media? And the answer is evidently not really. When we do our own surveys, like our own actual studies on this kind of stuff, what we do is we kind of take actual fake and false, often, you know, in some cases, just misleading and like partisan content uh, and then actual, you know, true mainstream kind of media content. Uh, We show it to people and we kind of we ask them different sorts of questions. If you ask people, would you consider sharing this on social media? People are really poor at discerning between the true and false stuff. Like they only they only share the true stuff, maybe 5% more than the false stuff. Oh my goodness. But if you, yeah. So if you, that's, which is horrible. Like it's very bad. And so like they, 
you know, truth doesn't really rate that well when you're asked about sharing. But if you ask people directly about, do you think this is accurate? They're really good at it, actually. Like they, there's probably like a 50% or in some cases a bit larger difference between true and false news. In fact, people, the average kind of uh, proportion of like headlines that we show people that people are willing to share is higher than the proportion that people say is accurate, which means like some people are sharing fake news headlines that if they were to think about it, they would know is inaccurate, but they just don't think about it when they're sharing it, right? So people can do it, but they just kind of don't, partly because when you think about sharing things on social media, accuracy is just not the first thing that people often think about, unfortunately. They think about, well, people like this, or what does it say about me, all that kind of stuff. So that's what, that's what it spreads, I think. It almost sounds like you're saying people are just lazy. Is that really the case? Yeah, I mean, they're lazy in a way, which is certainly we're lazy. Like our brains are set up to be that way. Which Another way to say it is it's efficient, right? Like if, if I, every time I ask you what your name is, if you had to stop and think about it, then that would be a really inefficient way. There's reasons that we have kind of automatic answers. The problem is that, you know, we use social media as an entertainment source. And so people kind of shut off their brains. Uh, but when it comes to like, there's things on there that we have to think about, such as actual news content. We're just not in the right mode to do that. We're lazy, but in many cases, it's efficient. In this case, it's just one of these many cases that psychologists have found where uh, our brain is smart in many cases, but if you take it to a weird context, then it doesn't do what you want it to do, basically. And your research essentially is saying this. Yeah, that's right. Our evidence is plainly consistent with this. We have really good evidence like so far. And every study that we've run, we get pretty similar results uh, for that. You know, People are, for example, when they're sharing content, they share things that are more partisan. But if you ask them about accuracy, then they, you know, it's more about whether it's true or false, not whether it's consistent or inconsistent with their political ideology. So uh, it depends on what questions you ask people. But the social media sharing, the way that people kind of think about that is not the way that they should think about it, unfortunately. But I think motivation would play a role, wouldn't you? I mean, we've seen studies that suggest partisan perception can lead a person to find the news that they want to believe and then share it. How, how does laziness fit into that? The, the reason why people believe fake news that's consistent with political ideology is because it seems more intuitively plausible to them. And so that's just a function of lazy thinking, right? It's just those are the things that catch their attention and that seem true. And unless they stop and think about it, they'll just go ahead and you know share it or believe it or whatever. But if you stop and think about things, whether or not it's consistent or inconsistent with the political ideology, they'll be better able to recognize fake news. And so what that means is politics is important, but we can trump we can override those effects if we just think about things a little bit more, at least to some extent. Nicely said. And yeah. let me get this straight. You essentially are saying that confirmation bias really is a form of laziness. You just want something to be true. You read it. It seems to match. You're going to share it. That's right. So, so the way that politics and these things tend to work on our beliefs is through kind of the power of intuition and emotions, right? That is, they, they grab your attention and what it would actually, it's kind of more like you might call it motivated unreasoning. Like they give you reasons not to spend time thinking about something because it seems like it's so evidently true. So it can shut off our brains. But if we turn them back on, we can still kind of override that. So it's still, we can, uh, in many cases, you know, intuition is really powerful in the context of like political partisanship. It's, it's probably going to hurt us, especially in the context of misleading like misinformation. So we, so we need to think more about things. Uh, definitely. How do we get people to think more? I mean, <laughs> this seems to be the eternal question. Yeah, Is well, there yeah. any way you that can figure we figure that out? Then you can collect your Nobel Prize. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, in your research, did you find any ways that we could convince people to actually think, use their brains, as opposed to just simply, as you say, being intuitive? So the in the context of getting people to think more about things when they're 
sharing content on social media, we did something really simple and it actually works pretty well, which is just basically remind people that accuracy is important. <laughs> and one example, what we did is we gave people a single, just like politically neutral headline at the start of the study. And we said, we're interested in this for like a different study. Just like, give us your opinion whether you think this is accurate or not. Okay. So they just rate the accuracy of one headline. And then we say, okay, now we're just interested. We're going to give you a bunch of different headlines. We're just curious on whether you would share them on social media. And what happens is if you ask people about the accuracy of the headline, they'll share less false news content. But if you ask them about like how funny is the headline or if you just don't give them headline at all, then they share more, right? So you can just kind of trigger people to think about accuracy and that decreases the sharing of fake news. Because they basically like, like I said before, because when people are sharing things, they don't think about accuracy. If we just get them to think about it a little bit, then that actually has an impact. Uh, we also did a version of this experiment on Twitter where we, through a lot of different steps, sent people direct messages with just like little reminders about accuracy, which everybody of course ignored. But it still had an impact on the like quality of the news content that people subsequently shared in like the next day. So if you just getting people to think about accuracy a little bit will seems to improve their capacity to to um, use that information to actually like improve what they're sharing on social media. So that's one thing, but it's just it's not a gigantic effect. But it's uh, in in our world that's <laughs> getting anything to work is pretty remarkable, I think. So really, when it comes to fake news, it's always back to the golden rule: look before you leap. Uh, but think before you leave for two, you know, that's the first step. Getting people to first, like, just question, is this true, is, is the, the most important thing to kind of get across. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it will help you to find ways to make fake news a thing of the past so you don't fear for our future. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. We want to show that gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show, usually in the form of a theme. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests and that browser that you can try out for yourself. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass.